0: Personally for a moment and just to tell us what does it feel like to be the third
1: president in u.s. History to be impeached Well, I don't feel like I'm being impeached because uh, it's a hoax It's a setup. It's a horrible thing. They did they happened to have a small majority and they took that small majority and they forced people And you know, they said oh, I watched Pelosi out there saying oh, no, we don't want to talk to anybody They put the arm on everybody. They tried to get them to do what they had to do many of those people were like jeff where they didn't want to vote that way but it doesn't feel to me it doesn't feel like impeachment last night i said it i i we had a great time last night the room was packed thousands of people couldn't get in Uh, a section that really is a pretty much 50 50 section in terms of democrat republican Uh, we had every one of those people is voting for trump pence every one of them and it's michigan an important state we brought back tremendous amounts of business tremendous car companies coming in everything else and i'll tell you i was up there and i was thinking about i actually said it it doesn't feel like impeachment and you know what it's a phony deal and they cheapen the word impeachment it's an ugly word but they cheapened the word impeachment uh that should never again happen to another president and i think you'll see some very interesting things happen over the coming few days and weeks.
0: Hey, y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today, we're going to be clarifying a couple of things from last week, and then we'll be talking about the momentous uh, Martin v. Boise decision from the Supreme Court, a bizarre and tactless interruption of a local congressman's Armenian genocide recognition event, the ramping up of the L.A. County District Attorney race, and a quick note about people's action and the presidential
2: primaries. Uh, But first, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, It's going pretty well. You know, like... Yesterday was a surprisingly quiet news day. Like, nothing of note or interest really happened. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, a few things did happen. I mean, I mean, I feel like the- I would have.
2: I feel like I would have heard about them, especially like presidential news. Like, I feel like I would have gotten a lot of push notifications, and probably my Twitter <laughs> timeline would explode, <laughs> and my Facebook would become like just a huge conflagration. And none of that happened. So I'm pretty sure. So I'm pretty sure. D- nothing just for happened. clarification
0: for everyone, yeah. So this the, we are recording this on Thursday, uh, December nineteenth, uh, and yesterday in in local or sorry in in national political news. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing, nothing happened.
2: Uh, <laughs> nothing
3: happened for the third
0: uh, time. Yeah, so that that actually does feed into uh, our, our our second uh, th- uh, story here because it's uh, uh, that that was the the impeachment issue. Of course, was what uh, was the impetus behind that in- interruption of that event uh, up in Glendale. But before we get into that. Uh, A couple of things were pointed out to us by one of our longtime listeners. Uh, First and foremost, uh, let's just go ahead and say that Marquise Harris-Dawson is not actually going to be terming out in 2024, unlike what we said last week. We were mistaken in that he is eligible for a third term. Which will take him all the way through to 2028, if he keeps on running and keeps on napping his way through the council meetings. Yeah,
2: he replaced uh, Bernard Parks. It turns out in 2015, which I kind of forgotten. I thought Bernard Parks left earlier, uh, but yeah. Bernard Parks served, served until 2015, uh, and before that, he was the chief of LAPD. And oh, fun. Yeah, that just angers and depresses me. But also, you know, another good opportunity for us to move farther and farther away from like the literal police state that we have in in city hall.
0: Yeah, that would be a, that would be a very good thing. So uh, let's hopefully see somebody running against him in, uh, in 2024 because uh, come on guys, like <laughs> we need, we need better people to be taking all of these seats. And uh Marquise has, has shown himself not to be a true ally on a number of issues, specifically surrounding housing and homelessness. Um, and you know, we, we need, we just need better people in these seats who will take the fight to the places where it needs to go. Um, and another thing that was pointed out to us is that when we're talking about social housing, uh, there's currently a, a, a number of housing, uh, units that are permitted to, to be built, uh, within the, the, uh, or within the city of LA, um, we, back in 2008, we voted to approve another 3,500 new units per council district. Uh, so this means that we don't, that was done in, uh, according to article 34, um, which means that we, you know, would be complying with article 34 and we can still actually build that social, that public housing. Um, and we wouldn't need to go and overturn article 34. Uh, but the fact that, in the last 11 plus years uh, we've been permitted to build 3,500 units per council district and we have failed to do so uh, is deeply disturbing and a truly a a, a sad, uh, you know, state of affairs for the city to be finding itself in when we're dealing with a housing crisis that finds, you know, more than 30,000 people sleeping on the streets of Los Angeles on any given night. Uh, The idea that we, would be, you know, balking at building 3,500 units of uh, affordable housing that, you know, will help keep people from falling into um, homelessness, but not, you know, actually provide a solution to uh, to get those people rehoused. This would just help eliminate some of the massive, uh, massively rent overburdened. Uh, you know, issues surrounding the fact that the cost of living in the city of Los Angeles dramatically outstrips what people are actually earning in wages here. This this kind of a housing development would be a huge boon to help the most uh, disadvantaged people, the most precariously positioned. But we've failed to build those 3,500 units per district in the last 11 years. Um so we
2: get a hell of an uphill battle coming up for us. And then one last quick, yeah, note I was going that, that well, that that one it was uh, back in two thousand and eight, it was uh, proposition B. and its main yes. thing was it allowed it, it basically a city hall to get around state and federal like obstacles to building uh, affordable housing. and then that's contingent on the city's funding and city's development requirements. so, we could be building these this housing right now, which I'm a little disturbed that, like, that hasn't actually been part of the conversation. I think I remember hearing about it a little bit during Prop 10, but nothing really since then. And as the, you know, point in time count, kind of, you know, as we keep bringing it up, points to, like, the acute crisis that we're in, it seems like that would be... Yes. The top of the docket for almost any city council office to get these units built rather than like fighting for shelters, which we still need shelters, but like shelters are temporary. Affordable housing is far more permanent for people. So it's a little bit weird that this one has just sort of like gotten approved eleven years ago and then been forgotten to the sands of times by most people.
0: Yeah. I- I'm really hoping that this uh this social housing motion that Bonin is apparently gonna be introducing in January uh, highlights that fact and and you know starts getting things moving forward on this. This also points in with with what we were talking about last week relating to the um, the the approval process of uh, permanent supportive housing and emergency shelters and the streamlining of those uh, in the face of CEQA lawsuits. So hopefully the um, that assembly bill, uh, the number of which is escaping me at the moment, uh, that came out of Santiago's office. It's a good bill. Hopefully, it's going to you know make it a little bit easier for this kind of housing to actually be developed. But this really points out the absolutely dire need for a, a, an actual like housing authority within the city of Los Angeles uh, that could actually go about and go out and do this kind of uh, construction because. Uh, we've, we've already proven that like the, the, the private markets uh, are certainly not going to be out there doing this for themselves uh, and, and attempting to solve this problem. As, as kind-hearted as some of these developers may say that they are, we are not seeing them actually solving this crisis because the profit motive simply says that they, uh, they can't make that money. Uh, and so the, like when you're talking about these kinds of, of, of things that are, are social public goods, you really need to just provide them as the public good uh, with taxpayer funding because that's literally what it is. Like the only way we're going to be able to solve the housing crisis here in Los Angeles is by tackling the fact that housing needs to be a public good. It needs to be decommodified. It needs to be something that the city is actually playing a very active role in, uh, and the county as well, because uh, the the markets just ain't going to do it. And we've seen that time and time again. And the places that have some of the best Um, most affordable housing in the world are places where the local authorities have come in and actually run housing authorities and provide the kinds of public housing that is so critical to meeting this need. Um, And then one last quick clarification relating to uh, our discussion last week, Um, the the Los Angeles Municipal races will be at or near the top of the ballot in 2020 and 2022 uh, per a state law that L.A. County helped to get passed. So uh, we're, we're excited to see those races up at the top and the, they'll come before all of those propositions. Uh, it really does then beg the question of who's going to make making those decisions on things relating to, oh, I don't know, ha. break times for ambulance drivers. Uh, because apparently we're going to keep seeing that kind of shit ending up on the ballot where, you know, the, I, I don't know why the electorate is, is being asked to make those decisions because that's literally what we elect our, uh, our elected officials to do. Oh God, the um, AB5 fight anyway, is going to be I so digress. bad.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah that's. That just That's Speaking of, that speaking of getting, ballot measures that's that are going wild. to just destroy the discourse, <laughs> as it were, the attempt by the gig economy folks to undo oh, AB5 oh. is going to be so bad. And before we move on, I just want to point out that, like, if you're a freelancer who's decrying AB5 as, like, fighting into your livelihood instead of like sharpening your pitchforks to go after the billionaires who are destroying whatever industry you're in, uh, you're targeting the wrong folks. But let's go ahead and talk about some other folks that are targeting the wrong folks, specifically Adam Schiff's appearance
3: at the Glendale (laughs) Public Library.
2: He was there to uh, not commemorate, but I want to say acknowledge the uh, official recognition of the Armenian genocide, which like it was an effing genocide. A couple million people died. I've met survivors of it. Call things what they are. So the fact that we're still, in some sense, debating whether or not the Armenian genocide happened is a little bit disturbing. Uh, but during the speech, he had some uh, unexpected and unwelcome visitors.
0: Yeah. So the basically what what happened was that you know this event was being held at the Glendale Central Library. It was meant as a way of thanking government officials for supporting resolutions recognizing the Armenian genocide because this is a thing that they've been trying to have. Like the the Armenian population in this country has been seeking recognition of this genocide as, in fact, being a genocide for decades and decades and decades, and it's just had no traction. Um, President Obama had promised during his election campaign to recognize uh, the Armenian genocide as a thing, and then once he got into office, he immediately backtracked on that and didn't, didn't do it.
2: It's also one of those things where, like, the Armenian genocide wasn't just, like, a genocide in in 20th century history. It was really the first mechanized and industrialized genocide, and that doesn't get talked about enough, you know. Um, I make a point of, of... Talking about how the Nazis, when they wanted to learn about eugenics and euthanasia, they called up Lynchburg, Virginia, because the U.S. was really good at that stuff. But when they wanted to learn how to wipe out a population in a systemic, controlled, and industrialized way, they looked to the Ottoman Empire and what they'd done in Armenia. And, you know, to, to put a little bit of a finer point on this also, these tensions aren't completely done. Like... Armenia and Turkey have been on the brink of war before uh, and not that long ago, like into the late 90s. There have been terrorist attacks in the Armenian parliament related to these historical divisions. This is not a part of history that has gone away as much as it's a part of history that continues to influence today because the impact was so great. A a huge percentage of the Armenian population was murdered in that genocide and a large percentage fled, like the Armenian diaspora is something that actually exists. And if you have Armenian friends in L.A., it's really fun to talk to them about the different characteristics of the different like places that the Armenian diaspora ended up because they've all got their opinions on the Lebanese Armenians versus the Iranian Armenians versus the Armenian <laughs> Armenians. And it's like this very interesting kind of like cultural show and also points to the resiliency of Armenian culture, which has been a, a continuous culture for thousands of years. They were the first Christian church. Armenian is still yeah. spoken in Armenia it is an incredibly ancient language like there's a lot of things to be um, I guess sad and depressed about and kind of horrified by but also there's a lot of resiliency and hope uh, that you can find when you, when you dig into this history and it really speaks very well to the people who are the family members of survivors, people who survived, that so many of them have been able to take their culture with them all over the world and keep it thriving. Yeah,
0: and on that note, the the city of Los Angeles, specific, well, the, the area, the Los Angeles metropolitan area, is, I believe, the largest concentration, uh, or is home to the largest concentration of the Armenian diaspora in the world. And specifically in the area around uh, Glendale and Burbank, uh, there's a huge enclave of Armenians... Uh, Armenian Americans who have who have made this part of Southern California their home and to that effect uh, there you know this is why this is it makes perfect sense for uh, Adam Schiff to have been one of the co-sponsors of the resolution and to have been a champion for this issue in Congress Um, and it also makes sense for why they would have an event like this but of course Uh, some Trump supporters basically decided that, hey, this is an event that we are aware of where Adam Schiff will be uh, publicly available. Uh, And and they were upset because of the fact that Schiff had been chairing the uh, Judiciary uh, Committee that was making a determination as to uh, or wait, sorry, the was it, it's the intelligence committee rather, uh, that was making the determination about the preliminary steps of the impeachment uh, of President Trump. So they decided to take their frustrations with Schiff uh, to this wholly inappropriate location uh, to denounce him uh, uh, for his actions on impeachment in front of. You know, we're talking like octogenarians and all of these people who have gathered uh, at the Glendale Central Library in, in, uh, in a ceremony to, to recognize the efforts of uh, Schiff and others for their support uh, of getting this resolution through. So it's just absolutely no. It baffling. makes a lot of
2: sense when you take into account Trump's friendship with Erdogan and his attempts to build those bridges because Trump himself oh, well, tried yeah. to stop the Senate from taking this up. <laughs> Do they really I mean, they, that they really do. I mean, A, he's got some business interests there. But B, I think he also just likes a fellow That's true. strongman. That's true. But, you know, Trump.
0: Oh, no, I, I agree with that. I just don't think that the Trump supporters in L.A. have any concept about what the context of that event that they were protesting. at. I think they just showed up because uh, they're tone deaf and have no idea of how inappropriate yeah. it was for them. To be protesting, I, I think that's. That I think it's space. probably but somewhere in the you're, middle you're, there because it's totally also right. like
2: Trump himself tried to stop the Senate from taking up the vote. He tried to get McConnell to kill it. That's,
3: yeah, there was fair. too
2: much political pressure. It's been coming for a while and building for a while. And after a couple of decades worth of lobbying, the Senate finally passed the bill recognizing the Armenian genocide. Whether or not, I, I, I don't think Trump has to sign it. I don't think it's one of the bills where like he has to sign it to make it be law, um, because I don't think it's really a law. I think it's more like a you know kind of resolution, like we acknowledge this sort of thing happened. and I'm too lazy to, it to Google yeah. it at the moment. Yeah. But Trump didn't want that to happen because the yeah. House passed it pretty overwhelmingly, <laughs> and it looked like it was going to pass in the Senate. Yeah. Um, after <laughs> it has failed to do so several times, so this was a really big win for you know recognizing historical atrocities. It doesn't have any really like legal weight to it that I know, uh, other than pissing off uh, tie up rice up. Erdogan which you know piss that guy off he's an absolute shit bag like just make him so mad that he strokes out it's all a mess and it's just yeah man the the
0: the way that that Trump supporters act in these kinds of situations is just Civil War 2.0 is really gonna I, suck I don't get it but
2: yeah, no, it's it's something that we're going to keep seeing more of, especially, you know, with the thing that didn't happen yesterday. Uh, people are just going to get more apoplectic and mad and be pushing for more ridiculous actions on behalf of the Trump administration. Speaking of be- of ridiculous actions that the Trump administration is taking on, uh, they've appointed a new homelessness star that we have talked about a couple of times. Uh, Marzup, and he is uh, a guy who runs shelters in Texas, I believe, um, that all have a very moralizing, like, sobriety-first Kind of like take to them, you know, basically he does the things that we know don't work, but things that work in a stunning <laughs> rebuke to the people who wanted to see Martin v. Boise overturned. The Supreme Court decided to not take the case. This is despite amicus briefs filed by several major cities and counties, including LA City and County. Yep. Uh, and it kind of came as a surprise to me because of the Supreme Court's very right leanings. But let's talk about Martin v. Boise and what's come out of that in the last week. And we also have some like really sad and Poignant news uh, that also kind of follows along with that. But let's let's yeah. dig into the details.
0: Yeah, this was a big one. So. Um, just for a little bit of background on this, the, this is, you know, the, the Martin V Boise decision was made by the ninth circuit court in 2018. Uh, it's regarding specifically the criminalization of sleeping on the streets. The phrasing that's at the core of Martin V Boise ruling, uh, that's at issue here is quote, as long as there is no option of sleeping indoors, the government cannot criminalize indigent homeless people for sleeping outdoors on public property on the false premise that they had a choice in the matter. End quote. So, um, for a little bit more context on this, Judge Marsha Berzon, who you know was in the ruling, I, I forget if she was the only. Judge uh, or what? but she basically she cited a nineteen sixty two decision in Robinson v California, which had struck down part of a state law that had uh, quote made the status of narcotic addiction a criminal offense end quote. And what was done here is that judge was the judge was extending that principle uh, from uh, narcotic addiction to the state of homelessness, saying quote, Just as the state may not criminalize the state of being homeless in a public place, the state may not criminalize conduct that is an unavoidable consequence of being homeless, namely sitting, lying, or sleeping on the streets, end quote. So this is hugely important in the ongoing fight for the rights of our unhoused neighbors here in Los Angeles and across the whole western United States. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit covers California, Arizona, Nevada, Idaho, Montana, Washington, and Oregon. So we've got, like... Um, a big old stretch of the Western uh, United States. Oh, and also uh, Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, sorry for forgetting those two. The non-contiguous um, states don't bunch count. There's a of people out there. <laughs> they do count as very Western, though, because they're all to the west of us here in California. Um. Anyway, so what's bizarre here is that on the same day that the court declined to hear this challenge to the Boise decision, uh, City Lab, which... uh. Uh, coincidentally was just bought by uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, 2020 presidential hopeful for the Democratic Party, who uh, then immediately fired, what, like half of their staff? Yep. Um, CityLab was reporting that Housing Secretary Ben Carson uh, had met with local officials in Houston and that he visited an emergency shelter uh, and was slated to tour a former Harris County jail facility as part of the Trump administration's new very much hands-on approach to dealing with homelessness. So there's a lot going on here, Um, but one of the people who was uh, a, a... very invested in this decision and whether or not uh, the Supreme Court was going to be taking up the ruling to to hear these arguments was L.A. County Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas. Um, yeah, he was not happy about. What oh my happened. God, his statement um, but was, he was so the bad. One who
2: cast- it was so bad and disingenuous and yeah, bullshit, and him <laughs> claiming like, "Oh, all we were looking for with filing the brief was clarity," and it's like it, the clarity is put a roof over yeah, everyone's no. fucking head, Mark. <laughs> the, that's the clarity.
0: Yeah. It's
2: <laughs> so it's
0: worth pointing out that he was the deciding vote on the board of supervisors. We, you know, we had two, uh, two folks locked up, uh, Hilda Solis and Sheila Kuehl were, um, both very much against filing the amicus brief, amicus brief rather. Um, and you know, Janice Hahn and, uh, Barger were the two who, were uh, in support of filing this brief, and Ridley Thomas was the one who got to make the decision. And the the, the day that they made the decision to file this this amicus brief was a marathon session in the Board of Supervisors, and like 90-something percent of the people who came out to speak on that issue, on that motion, to say— you know, to voice their opinion about whether or not the county should be filing an amicus brief trying to get Martin v. Boise overturned. The very much overwhelming majority of the people who were there, uh, were there to oppose yep. it with a clear, uh, you know, one, one exception of, of note, uh, is Catherine Barger's personal, uh, you know, guru on all of this sh- shit, oh, god uh, Fuck <laughs> you know, Dr. Him. Drew, um, Let's not forget that that asshole uh, had to weigh in and be taken fucking seriously uh, in the county supervisors. And, and it's, uh, uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, um, he's also, uh, Ridley Thomas, trying to replace Herb Wesson rep- to represent the city's uh, 10th council district. Uh, And he released a statement on this decision saying, quote, letting the current law stand handicapped cities and counties from acting nimbly to aid those perishing on the streets, exacerbating unsafe and unhealthy conditions that negatively affect our most vulnerable residents, end quote. Um, I'm sorry, what? It just says you can't criminalize being homeless. Because remember, he
2: wants the obligation to shelter to happen. Like, he thinks that's the way to solve this. And it's going to be interesting going into the cd 10 race... Because him, uh, you know, he's trying to step into yeah. CD ten while Herb Wesson is trying to step into his seat. Herb Wesson's first campaign ad was about Herb going to Skid Row to try and find his stepson who who yeah. lives on Skid Row uh, to invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. Something that Herb apparently does every year, but this is like the first year that he's filmed it for a campaign yeah. ad. But I think it's a very interesting take between the two of them that they're attempting to swap seats and taking exact opposite lines on how they want to deal with the the housing crisis and what they want to do about the 60,000 people who live on the streets of Los Angeles County. Now, it's also interesting because Herb Wesson was pretty unhappy with uh, Mike Fuhrer, as was most of council, because Mike Fuhrer did not need to seek council's yeah. approval to file his amicus brief. So let's talk nope. about what Fuhrer's reaction was to this, yep. because like <laughs> he caught some holy hell from pretty much everyone on city council, and I think it was a combination... Of folks who so. authentically believe that 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 filing the amicus brief and overturning Martin v. Boise would be the wrong position, and people who just wanted to stay out of it because right. it is a political landmine. Yeah. So, uh, like you said, Mike Feuer,
0: who by the way is a, probably a mayoral candidate uh, when Garcetti terms out here, because. Uh, I it's mean, worth remembering that everybody here has some kind of a political, you know, ambition that they're trying. I, to I just got to say, so. you know, I,
2: I, I yeah. find Führer's chances to be like slim to none. But I also encourage him to run just because it's going to waste a bunch of rich people's money. And I am just always in favor of that.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I would love to see him just get completely dragged because he is so far to the right of the popular opinion um, in LA County, and has no no capacity to understand what it is. Me that and actually Jack Humphreyville are going to form an apparently. unholy alliance um, to
2: oppose Mike Fuhrer.
0: <laughs> oh, I'd love to see that.
2: Uh, so he had
0: actually questioned uh, whether the city must have shelter available for all thirty six thousand. Yes! homeless people quote before taking enforcement action against a single unsheltered individual who refuses an available shelter bed in one of the city's regional shelters just because shelters at the opposite end of the city are full end quote you asshole those shelters suck. They're so suck. bad. They are dangerous places. They are in the one in uh, in Hollywood uh, that was set up at an old library apparently smells of fucking sewage all the time. It's a women's shelter that they set up in Hollywood that was, you know, a, an emergency shelter that was put into place. People don't want to go there because they feel like they're getting sick because they're inhaling these fucking fumes from these backed up sewers and toilets and everything else that were not properly mitigated before turning it into a place that is supposed to be habitable. The solution that we have on hand in the city of Los Angeles, the type of infrastructure that we have built and failed to maintain is utterly inadequate for the job. So yes, until we have housing for all 36,000 people, don't fucking arrest people for being on the streets. Because we've got nowhere else for them to go. Fuck you, Mike. Yeah, cure. it's.
2: I, I think it, it, this is a lot of folks showing their whole asses over what they would do with homelessness if they had the power. Yes, very. But much it's so. also scary because apparently Donald Trump is preparing an executive order where he's going to free up federal resources to yeah, give to that's, that's... Uh, police departments so that they can ramp up enforcement. And that's one thing that like seems frightening because you know the money would ostensibly have to go through the la board uh the la police commission i would imagine it might have to go through city council as well but knowing that there are people sitting on the dais that want more enforcement resources and want to privilege enforcement before shelter before housing people means that we have people ready willing and able to accept that kind of line and narrative from the trump administration which we tend to think of yeah. la city and la county as progressive and yeah. i would argue like la county's board is you know a pretty progressive body, you know, within reason, they whole, still yeah. are caught up in this debate where the more reactionary side is getting to set uh, the the agenda for us. You know, when we're having debates over housing, when we're having debates over what to do about people living in encampments, we're not arguing from the side of compassion. Like that's generally the less politically powerful side. That's the less powerful side in the narrative when it totally shouldn't be. And it it just sort of goes to show that for a lot of folks in power in L.A., it's easier to scapegoat folks, it's easier to say, hey, we called LAPD, they showed up, and now the encampment's gone, we've made progress, without ever following up with, well, what happened to those people? They yeah and, shuffle and them they shuffle with them with Trump's away, new homelessness are that guy really be- believes that you should have to be sober before you get a house you know at the at the the uh, shelter that he runs in uh, Houston I believe uh they have an outdoor courtyard and if you can't pass a drug test you have to sleep in the courtyard like they don't even let you into the shelter at night oh that's, that's yeah great. and there's nothing like and, and wow. if you if you just, from a human perspective, think about that, of course people aren't willing to go through that. That's just shaming people. That's treating them poorly. That's telling them, like, you're yeah. not good enough for very basic necessities. So, of course people aren't going to stick around. Of course people are going to give up after a short while and, like, go home. You know, we we don't need this sort of, like, fight club house where, like, everybody's standing out on the porch for four days in a row before we decide, oh, you've you've proven your medal, we yeah. we can let you in. Like that's just such a terrible way to go about bringing compassion and help to people and we know from the research that housing first works that getting somebody into a house where they have access to a caseworker where they have access to social services and doctors even if they're not completely sober has far better outcomes than trying to be like oh you're living on the street well you know just stop drinking stop stop self medicating just like forget (laughs) all of the trauma of your life and just be a better person like it doesn't work that way rich people spend so much money on effing therapists for smaller problems and yet we think somebody with no resources can just make themselves be sober for fuck's sake. Yeah. Yeah and, and on top of that
0: like it's how how do you expect them to get the treatment that is necessary to become sober when they are forced to then, you know, go sleep in a tent. Like what how how does this I it just
2: no it, blows it takes my me mind. back to
0: to think that this is a, this is actually a path that people. It takes think me back to work.
2: the the time I spent at Occupy Ice because like I was sleeping on the streets out there. That's how you do one of those Occupy events, and yeah. I didn't sleep yeah. for like a week. Like I I slept ish but I didn't really sleep. I didn't wake up every morning feeling refreshed. I woke up every morning feeling burnt out and agitated and not like myself. And I can only imagine after years of going through that, of not having good sleep, of not feeling comfortable, of not having any place to feel safe, how traumatized you will be and how that builds up. And it just is really depressing. And it also, it kind of brings me to the, the, the next point on this, which is, you know, Mike Fuhrer had himself a press conference in front of City Hall, and I forget what he was talking about. It was some some uh, silly thing or other. Um, but he made an announcement before that because they found a an unhoused man uh, dead in front of City Hall, and it was it was the part of City Hall that's across yeah uh, Spring Street.
0: It's a There's a there's yeah. a sky bridge that runs across Main across Street. Main Street. Uh So there's a sky bridge that connects. Um, it's the City Hall proper, like the old. Uh, the old iconic uh, city hall building with the with the observation deck. There's a skybridge that goes across to a a building that I believe is from the '60s. Um, and there's a whole bunch of like these weird sloped uh, brick uh, planters and whatnot. And it's been the site of a a number of homeless individuals camping out there um, because there's nowhere else to go. And also the city does provide some yeah level they of put services showers in there. Got. Um, I forget yeah. if it's Lava May or who, but yeah, yeah. So somebody comes by and does um, a weekly or twice a week shower, uh, mobile showers set up in front of city hall, uh, which means that you can actually get some services there, which is 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 good. Um, but they found a, a an unhoused man uh, in his mid fifties uh, who had apparently died sometime during the night. Uh, he was found by maintenance workers at seven forty in the morning and pronounced dead at seven fifty. Um and yeah this 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 all happened right on literally on the steps of City Hall as you're going in. Um. Uh, Garcetti released a written statement on the death saying quote my heart breaks for the man who passed away And it should outrage all of us that anyone dies unhoused and alone in Los Angeles Nothing drives that point home more clearly than discovering that tragedy in front of City Hall end quote Um, But let me actually pull up uh, Mike Fuhrer's statement on this. I want
3: to acknowledge at the outset a 50 year 54 year old homeless man died downstairs last night Uh, he was someone's son he might have been somebody's dad or somebody's brother I I don't know Uh, but I do know that he died alone downstairs and if there is any truth to statistics he is not alone last night two other homeless people probably died on our streets each of whom at one point was a young child, full of promise. Uh, As a city, we need to do better than this. As a community, we need to do better than this. Now, you know, I've been in this room and with those of you acting and writing and speaking on this issue many times, and I'll continue to be doing and saying more in the days to come. But for today, we have to mourn this man who died downstairs at City Hall.
2: One of the things that kind of struck me when I was reading coverage about this is this man had—they they haven't identified him by name, but they've given out some of the details of his life in the, the news reporting. He apparently lived in the South Bay up until about five years ago, uh, lost his house because of a combination of illness and job insecurity. But before that, he had worked for a major corporation uh, that was based out of the Midwest, I believe they said, Chicago or the Midwest. And this was a man who had a career, had a job, was able to afford housing for most of his life, and then fell through the cracks. And this is exactly what we're talking about when we say everyone is just one illness, one accident, one missed paycheck away from being unhoused. This is exactly the type of person that should have housing, that should have some sort of pension, retirement fund, have health care that they can access. And yet we, not just as a city, but as a nation, aren't providing that And in this case, it caused a tragic and unnecessary death and one that was made even more poignant by where it happened and when it happened. But this happens every day in L.A., three times. Like, three people a day are dying in L.A., and most of them are never making the news. Most of them are never having uh, flowery words said by the mayor about them. Most of them are just forgotten by the vast majority of us because it's kind of too overwhelming for, I think anyone to really understand or grapple with emotionally like it's really heavy to think that in a city with 60 billionaires three people a day die because they don't have access to basic services in the wealthiest nation that has ever existed
0: yeah so the 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 number that you're talking about is that in Uh, The L.A. County Department of Public Health found that 1,047 people considered to be homeless in L.A. died in 2018. Uh, Leading cause of death was heart disease, overdose, and traffic because, you know, we just do not take pedestrian safety seriously in this city and county. And then murder uh, at the top of the list as well. So the the, the number four cause of death um, in our own house population was murder uh, because people are extraordinarily exposed. Um, and so it, that, that number and the, the three uh, people per day that that averages out to uh, is, is where you see, like, there's, a, there's actually a hashtag on Twitter, three the number three, a day in L.A. Um, if you search for that on Twitter, you will see some very just, just viscerally upsetting tweets uh, that have been coming out there, really criticizing the things like attorney, uh, the city attorney and, and other folks. But yeah. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, Adam Smith uh, from White People for Black Lives, uh, not the famous economist from uh, days gone by, um, but one (laughs) of the really, like, getting his hands dirty all the time, just doing the work that needs to be done, organizers in L.A., uh, shared a story about his friend Miranda who was living under the 405 overpass in Venice, uh, or on Venice Boulevard, uh, who passed away. Um, She had been harassed by the cops many times, had her stuff stolen, uh, by police in LA sanitation was constantly facing threats from all sides um, and she passed away, not forgotten, but two other people also passed away that same day. And these are stories that are just going to keep happening and we know what a solution is to it. you know a friend of mine was posting about a new you know apartment building opening up by the uh, train station by the the place he works. And they're, they're renting uh, one bedrooms for up to $3,500. No, I'm sorry, not even one bedrooms. Uh, they're, they're renting uh, uh, studio apartments for up studios. to $3,500 a month. And oh you God. kind of think like, well, yeah. maybe instead of doing that, we should just start filling those rooms with people who actually need shelter. Like, we know what's creating the hi- housing crisis, and it's those kinds of developments, and the gentrification and police violence that they bring with them. So, right. moving on to an even uh, more fun and happiness-inducing topic, let's talk about the race for district attorney <laughs> in Los Angeles. So, right now, man, today's podcast. So, sucks. right now, it seems <laughs> uh, uh, it's not our fault, Chris. It's it's the hell world's fault.
1: I, but, I know. I uh, know so,
2: right now, there are done. three main contenders for LA's uh, district attorney office. Uh, our incumbent, Jackie Lacey, uh, San Francisco's former. Uh, Uh, District Attorney uh, George Gascon, and then Rachel Rossi, a former uh, public defender who was uh, at—she was a public defender in the county of Los Angeles, an alternate public defender, which they represent people who uh, are—who can't be represented by uh, the regular public defender's office uh, because of conflicts of interest, like often if two inmates— get into a fight and somebody's being defended and the the victim is being represented or was represented by the public defenders office that it has to go to the alternate public defenders office so they're basically like the public defenders office but when the public defenders office can't do the job for various legal reasons. Uh, And then she was also a federal public defender. So she's running under the banner of being a public defender, which is pretty cool that we're seeing public defenders running for these offices and getting a lot of press. Uh, However, George Gascon apparently sees that as a bit of a threat. Yeah, so his
0: campaign has actually filed a challenge to Rachel Rossi's ballot designation on the March presidential primary ballot. So she, as you said, filed listing her occupation as, quote, a federal public defender... Um, and so there, you know, when there is a challenge that is brought by one campaign against another, it means that they've got to go sit in front of a judge and explain themselves. This is one of the reasons why, for instance, in like in the city council race for CD 12 last cycle, uh, there was somebody who had been from, uh, the, the ethics, uh, commission and they were not allowed to keep themselves on the ballot because there was a, a pledge that they had signed Uh, That said, that they wouldn't, you know, seek office, and you know, the that kind of a legal challenge stops people from being able to be on the ballot. It's a way that, it's a it's a tactic that is used by some campaigns to try to. Uh, you know, cull the herd, as it were, when there is a challenging race going on. And right now, it is clearly established that Jackie Lacey is trying to push herself as a progressive. Um, George Gascon is coming in and saying, like, no, I'm actually the one who is the more progressive candidate. You should vote for me. And then Rachel Rossi, with her position as a former public defender, is like, no, actually, when it comes to like talking about real, you know, criminal justice reform, I'm the candidate that knows what the fuck is going on. Uh, to paraphrase. because... because. Because I haven't actually read her statements on this, and I'm just putting. No, she
2: has. She was. She actually did a a great interview on uh, Take Two about her race. Or no, I'm sorry. With on Press Play with Madeline Brand on uh, uh, KBCC, and she's really staking out like her ground as the true progressive in this race, Um, and it's it's very like it's and it's. Heartening to see that. I think it was funny that Ace posted, uh, you know, it's amazing that being a public defender is now seen as such a badass thing that it's a threat to be listed as a public defender on a ballot (laughs) because we've gotten away from the very law and order like prosecutors are the good guys, public defenders are just shady folks trying to to let criminals off the hook and kind of seen that like the systemic injustice has been fought by public defenders across this country for decades and we're finally acknowledging that and we're finally removing the the kind of like cops good prosecutors good by default narrative from the legal system because that's really been the Thanks prevailing order. Uh, thinking on it for a long while
0: yeah speaking of which uh our usual plug for citations needed uh can be inserted here because this is a topic that they talk about all the time, because uh, law and order and the public discourse on this kind of shit, um, specifically on like forensic evidence and everything else, has really just done a massive disservice to our our, our criminal legal system um, and, and and you know, increased the uh, just the rampant uh, mass incarceration of uh, specifically bro- black and brown folks, uh, specifically men. Um, and it's uh, things are broken, and uh, our media has a lot of yeah. say in that. But um, relating to this challenge that Gascon filed, that Gascon's campaign filed, Uh, Rachel Rossi's campaign released a statement, uh, on Wednesday, December 8th, 18th, denouncing that challenge saying, quote, as a public defender with the offices of the Los Angeles County public defender, Los Angeles County alternate public defender, and the federal public defender of the central district of California in Los Angeles, my ballot designation describing me as a federal public defender is completely appropriate. I am proud to be the first public defender to run for Los Angeles County district attorney and will fight this challenge vigorously. Uh, end quote. So uh, yeah, no, she's definitely very much qualified to say that she is a federal public defender because um, she, she, she was, I don't understand what the hell Gascon's campaign is, is trying to do here other than uh, play a cynical um, a political ploy to try to uh, thin the race out so that he can be the uh, more progressive challenger against yeah. Jackie and- Lacey, which on December 10th sh- he made a massive inroad in securing that position for himself uh, when the Los Angeles County Democrats endorsed him, uh, at, who is, you know, by the way, the the former district attorney from San Francisco, over our incumbent Jackie Lacey. It's kind of fun here because Lacey's campaign has spent the last several months trying to build up this kind of a narrative that she is actually a, quote unquote, progressive prosecutor. Um, But they shot themselves in the foot just days before the L.A. County Dems held their endorsement interviews uh, for this race because she held a fundraiser organized by a firm with ties to President Trump's reelection campaign, which um, of course she did. Why, why would she ha. not do that? But she it, it it really does not fit with the narrative that she and her campaign are trying to put out there, that she's some kind of a reformer, um which uh, folks, the 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 numbers speak for themselves. We've had what almost six hundred people have been shot and killed by LAPD and by the LA County Sheriff's Department. And there has been what a single a single prosecution. In the Not even the to tenure. mention the
2: whole Ed Buck fiasco or, like, the fact that she just oh, yeah. did oh, nothing God, for yeah. her entire time in office about a guy who was literally murdering people, uh, and it took the federal government to, like, yeah. sweep in and finally, like, charge him with stuff, and even once he was charged by the feds, she still couldn't figure out any way to, like, charge Ed Buck in L.A. County and then, like, blamed the, the <sighs> technicians on the scene for, like, spoiling the evidence and... Yeah. It just, it's so weak sauce. Like, it's just such absolute ridiculousness that she's still trying to sell that line. Uh, But she's been picking up some endorsements anyways, uh, but probably not endorsements that, like, are (laughs) going to make you want to vote for her.
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you, Adam Schiff, for uh, standing behind Jackie Lacey and showing us that uh, you're actually not that good at much of any of your things, um, despite you shouting at Trump all the time. So... Uh, thanks for sh- sh- shouting at Trump, but also, uh, dude, get out. We 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 can do better. Um, Senator Dianne Feinstein, same for you. Um, and, of, of course, our boy, Mayor Eric Garcetti, <laughs> uh, has uh, come forward to endorse Jackie Lacey in her run for office because he has no spine. Um, and then four out of the five members of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors have also stood behind her as well as the unions that represent the rank and file people uh, who make up the Los Angeles police officers and county sheriff's deputies because they are the best people to be deciding who it is that is at the head of the uh, department that then prosecutes all the folks that they either arrest um, or prosecutes them uh, when they decide to shoot people uh, out of policy because they yeah, well, and also that, remember, like I'm she's not, not doing a great job
2: that. enforcing uh, s b fourteen twenty one. Uh, she's kind of, you know, oh, letting the yeah, sheriff get away with hiding his files on police misconduct and sheriff- and oh deputy God, misconduct. Don't even yeah, I was gonna say, going to say, you were ahead. there when you saw the full weight of, like, <laughs> men with guns saying, no, y'all can't view public records, and also, this public building is closed, oh, yeah. you need an appointment. I, I, yeah, no, it's, it's... Which... Yeah. uh, So this is, I think, I think this is a little bit of you know the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, (laughs) I am hoping though that that you know having the endorsement of. Police unions and the deputies union this time around is not going to look so good for somebody. You know, I don't think that for a lot of people who are coming out and want to be voting a progressive ticket that they're going to see that the deputies union is endorsing Jackie Lacey, that that's going to really uh, make them want to check that box on the ballot. And it's going to be interesting because I feel like right now the math is that Gascon is actually the front runner. That Jackie Lacey is seen as someone who's in crisis and whose position is not secure, even though she's got the incumbency privilege. Uh, at the same time, I don't think a lot of people know Rachel Rossi, and it's going to be a real uphill struggle to get people to know her name and to know that she's running and that we've got an actual progressive option in this race. But you know, I, it, when it comes to the the lawsuit that Gascon filed, you know, politics is war by other means, so. I don't hold it against him too much. It is a bit of a dick move. Um, but I also think it's one that's probably going to fail. And I think it also shows his whole ass. Like, he wouldn't be doing this if Cheza Bowden hadn't scared him. You know, if he hadn't seen that tactic of being a public defender work and win yeah. a seat for district attorney very recently, <sighs> he would not you know see that as a threat to his ascendancy to this office so um i feel like we're gonna get lacy replaced i'm not sure who it's going to be but i really don't think that jackie lacy uh is is in a really healthy political position at the moment but you know again we're gonna have to see it's gonna be a wild and crazy year in 2020
0: i don't want to diminish any of the criminal justice reform that he pushed for in san francisco because um apparently it struck a nerve with some of the folks oh, there who yeah. for some fucking reason have decided to weigh in on the LA County district attorney office, uh, race. And, uh, that is San Francisco mayor, London breed, Um, who really just does not like Gascon, Uh, she and San Francisco's longtime city attorney, Dennis Herrera, have both endorsed Jackie Lacey. So... uh,
2: It's so weird.
0: If nothing else, the fact that they're pissed off about him challenging Lacey... Leads me to say, okay, you know what? Worst case scenario, if we get guests gone, like it's probably not going to be that bad. But I am really excited by what it is that Rachel Rossi's campaign uh, has to offer. And I really want to see how this moves forward in 2020. And now let's go ahead. uh, Yeah,
2: so speaking of 2020, uh, as we've mentioned several times on this podcast, uh, Ground Game Los Angeles is a member organization of People's Action, which is a national organizing structure. We have about 40. Uh, Membership organizations across this country, large and small, representing more than a million members. Uh, People's Action has decided who they're endorsing, and you're never going to believe they're endorsing Mayor Pete. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) People's Action is full-throatedly endorsing Bernie Sanders. I know Uh, you're you're kind of wondering, and we're not going to talk about this now, but what Ground Game is going to do. Stay tuned. There will be an announcement on that coming shortly. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg, yep. we're, we're really excited to see you in the race.
0: <laughs> so uh, George Gale, who is the national director for People's Action, uh, sent out an email uh, with a statement in it saying, uh, quote, this wasn't a decision we made lightly. We have a deep commitment to democracy, and we stuck to that commitment. Designing an endorsement process that was a vehicle for the multiracial working class to make its voice heard. Uh, After a year and a half of forums, gatherings, and other conversations with the candidates, the choice was clear. Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro both got votes, but Bernie Sanders won the final endorsement vote with a whopping 73% of the vote, end quote. So Gail pointed out to reporters that the linchpin of this endorsement process really was the rollout of Bernie's housing plan, which very closely resembles People's Action's own Homes Guarantee and calls for implementing national rent control, building nearly 10 million affordable homes, and near and dear to my own heart, investing an additional $400 billion to build 2 million mixed-income social housing units across the country to be administered by the National Affordable he, Housing Trust He also Trust Fund. ranked
2: the highest in our Green New Deal cohort with People's Action that I've been doing some work with. So yeah. he came in number one. Um, nope. I, I, Elizabeth Warren came in number two, lagging slightly behind him. The main difference was... Bernie's support for nationalizing and democratizing the national utility grid, something that Elizabeth Warren has kind of been lagging on. Julian Castro also did pretty well in that one, Um, but his plans aren't as well-developed. And, like, I like what Julian Castro has been doing, but if you're looking at which campaign seems more ready to step into the White House day one. Bernie's got the plans. And let's also not forget the Green New Deal for public housing bill that him and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez introduced. That's basically the home's guarantee meets the Green New Deal and lays the groundwork for us actually creating the kind of affordable, sustainable, resilient housing that we need to update our public housing stock and to provide safe, reliable housing for millions of people across this country and in a way that allows us to shift away from this commodified uh, housing market that we've got right now. So he's really, everything that he's been doing is very much in line with what people's action stands for, with what we organize for, and I'm really excited this time around by how his campaign has grown, because I think his 2016 campaign was really, really good. Like, obviously, you know, he came very close to becoming the Democratic nominee. At the same time, there was some missteps. There was some, like, not sure-footedness. This time around, I don't feel like they're making as many of those same mistakes. I feel like they have a much more robust plan, that they're moving forward in a much more confident manner, and that they're really, really bringing it home when it comes to the actual policies, and you have a clear vision of what it would look like for Bernie Sanders to get his entire agenda passed like why America would be in a better place for that. And I'm really excited that the People's Action Network has thrown in on that. Not only because it like frees up resources for People's Action Network to go out there and canvass for Bernie and tell people to vote for Bernie, but because it brings a million more people into this conversation that are already organizing and working locally. You know, these aren't people who are now going to go into their communities and be like, "Hey, I'm here to do this thing." These are people who are already in their communities organizing These are people who've already built that trust and built that power, and now they get to leverage all of that work that they've done to win the White House. And that is so absolutely exciting to me, and the idea that we can be a part of that movement, and that we are a part of that movement, uh, kind of astonishes me. So, if you want to be a part of that movement, too, before we get to pickups, remember, we do ground game meetings every week, and if you want to get in on this action... It's always open door, and anyone can walk in and get to work
0: absolutely so uh, another thing that that is worth pointing out here is that this endorsement from people 's action is coming hot on the heels of Sanders winning the support of the Center for Popular Democracy, which is a group that uh, a left wing group that counts six hundred thousand folks as their members. Uh, so together, it also does dope work yes, they do, and so these two endorsements represent around one and a half million supporters who are going to or a million members who are uh, very much all going to be voting for Bernie, I am sure, because this, you know, as you just so eloquently put it, like, he's the one that is enabling people who are doing the work to get this these levers of power in our hands. Like, this is how things get changed, and it's, you know, his whole not-me-us slogan is just so emblematic of exactly what is going on and how things are going to need to be meaningfully changed in order for us to really you know save the future and not die in the complete hell world that uh, global climate change is threatening upon
2: us. Yeah, my my you know desire for accelerationism is, is tamped down a little bit more every time Bernie <laughs> picks up a win like this. So that's really exciting news. Like I said at the top of the segment, uh, stay tuned to Ground Game. We will be making our own announcement about who we're going to be endorsing. Uh, we've got some really exciting stuff coming up this weekend. Um, I'm going to kind of jump into the top of pickups and uh, Bernie is coming to uh, LA on uh, Saturday. Uh, he is going to be doing a small forum meeting community leaders from public housing that work with power and ground game los angeles it's not an open to the public event but keep an eye out for some media coming out of it uh that we're going to be producing and talking about our commitment to social housing and public housing and the people who live there and the people who rely on that for stability and also making sure that bernie understands what exactly it is that he's fighting for and what and who it is that he's fighting for um what else do we have going on this week chris
0: well, so uh, Los Angeles Tenants Union is actually not going to be having any meetings for the next week and a half uh, through uh, Monday, this coming week, until New Year's. Um, the Black Lives Matter a vigil, I don't know if they're going to be having it on Christmas Day. It's possible, um, but I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that one, so uh, cannot comment. And I am also sure that ground game is not going to be. Yeah. I'm pretty meeting, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Christmas. we're not getting together on so.
2: December 26th. Um, you know, we, we tend to, we tend to celebrate rather heartily. So I can imagine that there's not going to be yes. a lot of folks wanting to get together and organize, but we'll be back the week after that, uh, going strong into the new year.
0: Absolutely. Uh, So, yeah. And uh, on a similar note, we're probably going to be taking uh, next week off on the podcast. Maybe. I don't know. Actually, I'll I'll be back in town on Friday, so we might record. Um, uh, We'll we'll, see if if nothing happens again. (laughs) I mean, if nothing happens again, we've got a whole bunch of shit in the backlog that we can absolutely... Uh, rant and rave about. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a podcast next week. No promises. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. So anyway, as always, if y'all have got any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or just being made aware of, send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page, or you can send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, on Instagram over at, at Ground Game LA. And you can like and follow the Ground Game of LA Facebook page for all of our live stream content from actions around the city, as well as links from NOC. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is, of course, a production of NOC.LA, and NOC.LA is a cooperative, nonprofit, multimedia collaboration, and we invite you to be a part of it. Please support our work over on Patreon. We pay local writers to report on issues happening in the neighborhoods and around L.A., so your support goes directly to funding the work of shining a light into the spaces that the establishment figures want to keep Shrouded from view. We also invite you to contribute your own work on Knock.L.A. We are in this together, and your voice matters. If you'd like to read the sources that we are citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Thanks a bunch for listening.
2: You know, as a, a, as a throwback to the uh, endorsement from People's Action, never lose your sense of outrage. Come hit us up. Get organized. Stay organized. We're going to win, folks.